My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post Credit Podcast. I am your host, Eric Italiano, senior writer at ProBible.com. Today, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Kate Onder, who you could find writing about video games. Kate, I didn't catch your Last of Us recap this week. Did you do one? I did. I was at a movie when it went live, so gotcha. I didn't put okay. it on my Twitter. Well, he's writing about TV shows now, too, over at comicbook.com. And then today we are also joined by our buddy Brandon Katz over at Parrot Analytics, former journalist. It struck me when you tweeted that you are no longer a journalist. Yeah, man. That's, uh, so, as, that's so weird to say. As of September, after eight years as a full-time entertainment reporter, uh, you know, I'm, I've moved on. I've elevated. I've escalated. I've, I've ascended, whatever you want to say. <laughs> Now he's just a straight up numbers nerd. Yep, basically. Uh, All right. And today we are discussing the Oscar nominees dropped just this morning. We will also be diving into episode two of The Last of Us. B, I just touched on that. I was going to ask if you've screened them, but you don't get screeners these days. Sorry. Yeah, you know, it's cool because because I was with The Wrap, you know, in 2022. So I just got so many screeners delivered to my house. It's probably the last hurrah because I was on the list as of like, you know, September. So it has been pretty great working through like dozens of DVDs. But yeah, this is this is more or less the last of it. Occasionally, I get still get some TV stuff. I have the first four, but I've been resisting the urge to watch forward because I have always enjoyed the weekly week to week HBO experience more. But before we dive into that, we're going to talk about the Oscar nominees. Now, everything, everywhere, all at once leads the way with 11. Banshees of Inisherin and All Quiet on the Western Front follow with nine. I guess a good place to start is there are some big surprises as there are every year, but I think specifically in the acting categories, there are some out of left field. Have you guys seen this Andrea Riseborough conspiracy? Not quite conspiracy theory, but... uh, It's a grassroots promotional effort by those close to her. And, uh, you know... It's interesting, and I'll let you explain a little bit more, but I, yeah, I, let's, let's put it this way. I think it's at least more honest than what the studios do. <laughs> that's a good point. I guess that's a good point. That is a good point that I had not thought about because I had been a big Grinch about because it's hard for me to like use the words grassroots and celebrity fueled in the same sentence. Yes, like, that's they fair. Just, that's so, very fair. Basically, and it's not as if she's a no-name. The thing that I know her from most is she's in that Tom Cruise flick, Oblivion. She's like mm. the woman in the chair who like tells him what to do as he's off doing Tom Cruise things. She got nominated for Best Actress for a film called To Leslie, which I looked it up, has earned $27,000. Nobody ha- had heard of it until two weeks ago when people like Kate Blanchett brings it up in her award speeches and Kate Winslet like hosts a panel about it and Edward Norton tweeted about it. It is surged basically out of nowhere. I doubt any of the three of us have seen it, right? B, have I've you, Cade? I went opening night. No, I'm joking. I believe you. You just came off of seeing Skinamarank, so. I love to support good independent film um oh man i've heard some crazy things about that movie but what do you guys think about the riseboro thing what do you think about any sort of surprises in general from this year's noms it's a i think it's one of the best years in recent memory just overall but also like best picture nominations i there are only two maybe three that i haven't seen and they're not movies i hadn't heard of until this week i i've been meaning to see them just haven't it's banshees and there's there's two two other ones I can't remember what they were. Uh, talking. That's it. That's the other one. Yeah. Um, and I, I was planning to see those at some point, anyways. So uh, it's a great year, and you know 
it, it, I don't know. There's been a lot of talk of, is the Academy going to start pushing movies that other people have seen to increase viewership? Or do they actually mean, you know, something like Top Gun? I feel like they do. I feel like that movie's good enough that a lot of people in the Academy would be like, yeah, we'll give it a nomination. It's not going to win. I don't think, but uh, it's, it's good to see a very robust, diverse list. You have something for everybody on that list, which I think is a good way to structure that nomination list. And just back quickly to the uh, Andrea Riseborough conspiracy, <laughs> even though it's not that it's really Mary McCormick, who's the director of, I mean, who's the wife of the two Leslie director, Michael Morris. She's the one who's kind of coordinated this and like reached out to the, her famous friends and given them screeners, like let them watch the movie and come to their own conclusions, but has essentially pushed like, Hey, if you like it, say something. So again, <laughs> like the reason why I say it's more honest than the studios, it's like, instead of pouring millions and millions of dollars yeah. and hosting these events to like schmooze voters and kind of not buy their votes, but you know, really get inside yeah. their head. It's just it's just a woman connected to the film contacting her famous friends, being like, check it out. And I, I kind of respect it, even though it's a little bit of a less field thing. Uh, now, more broadly, like Kate just mentioned, it, it is a little bit more something for everyone. There's still four Best Picture nominees. I haven't seen All Quiet on the Western Front, Tar, Triangle of Sadness, and um, Women Talking. I'm going to get those before the uh, before the Oscars in March. But what I did find interesting that somebody tweeted today, I did not know, is the first time in 40 years that the top two highest grossing movies of the year are both nominated for Best Picture. So I think that's really, really interesting. It's a good way. Listen, I I didn't particularly like Avatar The Way of Water that much. I said on here, I give it a C plus. But do I understand and and, and respect why it's nominated as the Oscars try to go a little bit more mainstream, generate a little bit more uh, regular everyday interest. Yeah, completely fine with it overall. And hey, the, the original Avatar, which I liked even less, got a Best Picture nomination too. So screw it. Here's what I think is strange about that. Well, not so much strange, but the fact that it makes me feel like it's a very hollow nomination for that film. James Cameron spent a decade trying to make it. He invented the technology required to make the film. Everything that you're seeing on the screen came from his brain, and yet he's not nominated for Best That director. pissed me the fuck off. I oh, was I like, know. this that's doesn't make I, any that's, fucking sense. That's why I'm bringing it up. <laughs> I knew I'd get a rise from you. Uh, look. <laughs> You know, I just think that that's a clear sign that they don't well, actually. Was he nominated for best director for the first one back in 2009? I, I have take a look. I'll look. Because that uh, might be like, you know, we did, we threw him a bone then and both are nominated. And frankly, he doesn't need any extra accolades given that both surpassed 2 billion. So, you know, it's not like he's hurting for the attention or <laughs> validation. He is, uh, though. He I mean, is, man, though. The man made $270 time... million or something from the first Avatar. He's probably going to make $100 million from this. He's made $100 million plus from Terminator 2. Like, and that's not, it has nothing to do with his salaries or anything, just the box office cut. He's fine. I don't know. He strikes he, me as... Okay. He won, or he was nominated for Best Director for the first one. There you go. So... Um, all right, and then a some... submarine right now, not caring. <laughs> he doesn't even know yeah. any of this happened. He's underwater. He's I'm trying to find the James second Titanic. Bond, some Bond villain shit. <laughs> uh, some other big surprises are Brian Tyree. Well, and you know, good and bad, really, just because it's a surprise does not mean it's bad. Uh, Brian Tyree Henry scored a best supporting for Great Causeway. Act. Paul Mescal, best actor for Aftersun. Judd Hirsch was nominated over Paul Dano in Best Supporting, and RRR wasn't nominated in Best International Feature. Yeah, so I, I was confused about that. I asked I asked Twitter, and thankfully they they confirmed, you know, they told me what the deal is, and I did confirm it. 
India didn't submit it for its international feature. It chose a different title to submit for consideration. Why they did that, I don't know. Maybe they were trying to see if it gave it better chances for a regular Best Picture nomination. I still, you you can do both. I, I just don't know why they wouldn't roll with RRR. Yeah, strange. That was um, a good movie. Yeah, the the other international film snub that I thought was baffling was Decision to Leave. I don't know if you guys have seen that. No, uh, but I've been hearing about it. it. Very good, and I was like, I hope that I, I was like, this is gonna get so many awards and none. Uh, at hey, least where here. did you see that movie? It's on uh, to Tubi or something like that. No, not that. Uh, one of Amazon's like. Can, no, it's not. I don't remember what it is, but uh, it was. Services do they have? I don't know. Uh, it, it was. It was on something. Uh, well, maybe that's what it was. This is a shameless plug that I'm not getting paid for, it, but RealGood.com is a great way to see where something is streaming in in the U.S. for mm. for anyone who needs it. I use it all go. the time. Free plug. All right. So mm. predictions. Let's start with best supporting actress. I called this one out in July. Well, I didn't call the win, but I called that she would get nominated. I think it's going to go to Angela Bassett for her work in Wakanda forever. She becomes the first MCU acting nom in since it started 14 years. No, 15 years ago now. I think that's a good call. I think like, again, when you, when I was thinking of like, nominations you think of like the clip they show when they announce the the nominee and it's like she has the clip like that's like the definitive like you immediately get like yeah that's the winner where they're gonna announce it in a few seconds that's the one um and the fact that she gave such a good performance and um i guess we can spoil wakanda forever it's been long enough right and people have seen it well if you don't want to hear what kate is gonna say skip ahead 30 seconds (laughs) she dies um and that's that's very shocking given in a movie that they have a death at the very beginning so the movie pulled a lot of punch or you know made a lot of punches i should say um and she she brings the weight and you can feel that emotion in her that's both personal to her as an actress and for her character um i think she she deserves it it's very good yeah i mean i hate to be a uh you know someone who just parrots other other opinions (laughs) Angela's got to be the uh, the front runner. I mean, she she gives such a powerhouse performance in what is, you know, an extremely commercially successful film. There is a lot of dramatic weight. Now, this is a very stacked category, I will say. And I think there's a lot of deserving candidates, you know, like Carrie Condon for Banshees of Venturian, uh, you know, like uh, Stephanie Hugh and Hong Chow for, for The Whale and Everything Everywhere Once. But, you know, if I was a betting man, which I am, I would bet on Angela Bassett right now. Yeah, she's probably a heavy favorite. I don't understand why Jamie Lee Curtis was nominated. Ow. Uh, sorry, ow. I, I got to stop playing with knives while I talk on the... <laughs> That's impressive, Eric. Laughing. I thought we all the rest of us learned that when we were four. <laughs> ADD could be a real bitch, man. Um, okay, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, I was just saying, I, I don't know why Jamie Lee Curtis was nominated. Obviously, oh, I will tell you why. This yeah, go is ahead. like a legacy nom. I guess. She's been around for, yeah. for a while. She's a relatively iconic actress. She comes from a Hollywood family. But I mm-hmm. think, and I'll get to this point, I think it speaks to what makes everything, everywhere, all at once, such a powerhouse. They literally said every character in this film nominated. Pretty much, All yeah. All four of the main roles have yeah. been nominated. They said, everywhere you turn, this is an award-worthy performance. And that's all of the above-board shit. 
that doesn't even count the litany of blowboard shit that they got. Like, um, I think best film editing, is film editing has always been closely linked to the best picture winner. They got director, so they got picture, director, actress, supporting actor, supporting actress, original screenplay, original score, original song, costume design, and editing. Those are all huge. But the acting thing really struck me because even Jamie Lee Curtis, who like is by far the least impressive of them all, she's still fun enough. And I think it just speaks to them just sort of putting their weight behind this film. Best Supporting Actor, this is going to come off as me being anti K. Hugh Kwan. Is that how you say it, Brandon? I believe so. But if if not, sorry, guys. I don't know why I ask you as if you know, but um, (laughs) K. Hugh Kwan, this is not me not loving his performance, but I because I think he's great. I love the story. His personality seems fantastic. But is there, I mean, I'm sure there are, but Brendan Gleeson is one of the most deserving, non-winning actors, I think, out there. So I hate that he is coming through in a year where K. Hugh Kwan is just a fucking buzzsaw, and he's just going to dominate this one. If it's not K, it's going to be Gleeson. I haven't seen Banshees yet, so I can't weigh in on that part. But Max, dog. I know, I know. I need to watch it. I'm going to watch it probably this weekend. Uh, I say that like I say that about everything I don't watch on this podcast. So we'll see. But it uh, me up. it's fucking hysterical. It's, 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 it's just like, a running joke at this point. It's dark, but it's hysterical. B, um, you had put out a tweet. Let the Barry. Uh, I still can't say this guy's fucking last name, despite the fact that I literally heard it like six times today. <laughs> Keegan. Keogan. Yeah. Uh, it's his time. Yeah. I mean, he was extremely deserving here. He's He's been great in everything since uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer, which was kind of his, his you know, first introduction to, to audiences. Obviously, he, he's been a scene sailor in, in other things like Green Knight, uh, you know, Eternals, things like that. And, you know, he's going to get another mainstream boost from probably future Joker stories within Matt Reeves' Batman universe. Guy is only he's our age, so I think you know, he's 29, 30, 31, you know, somewhere in that range. Sorry, uh, Cade, you young person. But uh, you know, he's got a long and fruitful career ahead of him. And I think this is the first of many nominations to come for someone who's very, very, very natural, like one of the more organic performers you see. All right, moving on to best actress, which I think is tough. I think that this one is truly a this is usually a tough category. Toss-up. And my logic is that if Kate Blanchett didn't have two, I think she'd be a lock. But because she already has hers in the bag and will likely get further nominations down the road, that makes me feel as though they see this as an opportunity to give to someone else. And what I consider when I try to pick who is going to win these is what you need to understand is that the Academy, as much as anything, are into optics. So the optics of giving it to Michelle Yeoh for a fantastic performance that would reward the film itself, but also everything she's done for the last 30 plus years would look great. Her speech, I'm sure, would be fantastic. But I haven't even seen Tar, and I feel like Kate Blanchett has given the best performance I've ever seen just from like what I've heard about it. So it's a real toss up here. Now, because I think everything, everywhere, all at once is going to win Best Picture, and Michelle Yeoh is sort of the, ta- not sort of, she is the talisman for that film. I think that that might be her moment in the sun. So I'm, I'm leading Blanchett here, but I'm really not sure. Yes, Kate Blanchett is incredible in Tar. She plays someone who's very tortured, but also like such a fucking asshole in like the best way possible in a way that you're kind of like, I can't help but kind of like you in some way. You're right. She's been given a lot of love in the past. 
I, I feel like only one person from the cast of Everything Everywhere All at Once will get an award. I don't think more than one. So it's either Kei Hu Kwan or Michelle Yeoh. And I, I don't think there's any uh, debate about that. Um, I, I really, I don't think she hasn't gotten a ton of love for like the actual awards, but Ana de Armas, like she fits the bill for the Oscar of playing someone who's in Hollywood and is beloved by Hollywood doing a very um, showy and mimicky performance. I mean, they fucking gave Rami Malek the Oscar for Bohemian Rhapsody, which travesty. Not a, even a good performance. <laughs> so, travesty. Um, a crime against the senses. Exactly. So, like, and I I don't think that movie was very great, but she was really good in it. So, I mean, I could totally see that going to her, but she hasn't really gotten anything. I don't think like a ton of recognition in terms of actually wins. Uh, so I don't, I don't, I'm not going to place my bets on that. I do have to respect Michelle Williams because when the movie came out, everyone assumed she was a lock for a best supporting nomination, if not the leading contender. She opted herself to to run to campaign as a best actress in a leading role. And everyone said, like, it's a really crowded field. What is she doing? She probably might cost herself a nomination here. And you know what? Clearly she knew best. It doesn't mean she's the front runner. doesn't mean she's going to win, but... You know, we we all doubted that strategic decision, and right now it's looking pretty good. But why do you respect it? She's probably going to lose. It's she would have won if she ran in. Maybe, maybe not. But you know, it, it, this raises the profile and looks nice on a stat sheet when you're looking back on someone's career and be like, "Wow, X amount of Best Actress in a Leading Role nominations." Damn, that's pretty yeah, impressive. True. So has, uh, what, you know, if she got it now at this point. Michelle Williams is a lot. I think Michelle Williams and, and Amy Adams are both like people with a lot who haven't won. I might, might need to double check me on that. But uh, I, I do think Michelle Yeoh is probably going to uh, take this. I think it's it's deserving. She's got a great narrative, as do a couple other candidates uh, here. But yeah, uh, you know, it's it's this the best actress and best supporting actress are usually the most interesting races every year. Yep. All right. Best actor. I'm going Colin Farrell. I think that the Brendan Fraser redemption story is wildly charming, as is he. But so is Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell had his rough times, maybe not as um, explicit as Fraser's, but he is certainly on the comeback trail. Now, I haven't seen The Whale, but I have, so I can't really speak to it personally. But what I can say is everyone who's seen Banshees has been like, wow, great. Love the film, love Colin, so on. The Whale, I've heard at least 50% of people be like, fuck that movie. So if that is my sample size, I'm assuming that that is probably the case widespread. And I just think that Colin Farrell is a, mm, I think he's going to put in, like the way that you could tell that Brad Pitt was just steamrolling his way to his because he gave banger speech after banger speech after banger speech. Colin Farrell feels like he's about to start doing that. So, I mean, Austin Butler got a Golden Globe and that doesn't feel insignificant. I feel like a lot of people were like, oh yeah, he was good. And again, back to the Honor de Armas thing, beloved person doing all the fucking makeup and all of the like shot for shot recreations of historic moments from their, their character. I don't think he's going to win it, but I, I I would put him at like number I, again. I haven't seen Banshee. So I really don't know. Everything I've seen is just like two dudes hanging out. So I like, I have no idea the weight of these roles. Uh, so I could, t- if I sound totally stupid, fair play, I'll let you know next week. But um, 
Will you? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And yes, Brendan Fraser is kind of, again, he's not a historical figure in this movie, but he is doing all the big makeup and the showy performance and the tears. And there's a a real life story of redemption here, which I believe is kind of the character in The Whale. I haven't seen the movie because people were like, "Eh," so I haven't gone out of my way to see it yet. But um, I think those are the two I will, I will put up for right now. Austin Butler and Brendan Fraser. So I I've seen all the movies except living with Bill Nye um, in terms of the actor nominations and historically, particularly in the last you know decade plus best actor and best supporting actor have skewed to older men. Whereas best actress and best supporting actress have skewed to younger, more uh, emerging talents. So that's why like an Anya de Armas or someone like that could, could sneak into those races that's that's the trend lately which you know that's its own can of worms so having said that that probably favors a brendan fraser or colin farrell who are you know two of the the front runners but i could see austin butler winning this now i have seen the whale i do think it's extremely divisive and i think that's going to hurt it i personally was not as big of a fan of the movie as some uh i think there's some some serious issues with it i think brendan fraser's praise all the love he's getting right now is totally deserved he some he anchors that film with such a just brutally sympathetic uh performance that is also still like an off-putting character who's trying to do better which i like and uh you know i i'd be perfectly happy if him or colin farrell won i i do think austin butler has a significant shot not not like a oh this is a nice you know nomination for an upcoming actor i think he has a significant shot as those two might actually split the difference and open up a lane for the commercially successful Elvis to move forward. The one last thing I'll tack onto that is uh, I was looking, I don't know why I started looking at it, but I looked at girl interrupted today has a 53% on Rotten Tomatoes, but Angelina Jolie got the Oscar for that movie. So a divisive movie that had a defining performance that won. I think that when she, speaks... when she was very young too. Exactly. Actress. So, so they, you know, that's, that's how it goes, which, you know, they gotta, they gotta figure out that, that voting system because, <laughs> you know, you can't just be like, Oh, this is the hot name and in, in yeah. talent. And then we'll just give it to the older guy who deserves it after yeah. a career. Yep. All right. Finally, best picture. I am going everything everywhere all at once. I think that this is like parasite on steroids. I haven't seen sports books that have posted the odds yet, but if you can get this as a dog, I suggest that you absolutely take it. Now the most nominations doesn't always translate to a best picture win. However, this to me, it feels like parasite did, but at a greater scale because it was a commercial success too. This film made a hundred million dollars it comes from a24 which is like the darling studio these days there is of course the optics and narrative of getting the diverse cast up on stage to accept the award and then there is the fact that as much as i love banshees that's basically a play right it's two dudes talking about their feelings in a both hilarious and heartbreaking manner but that is what it is at the end of the day Whereas everything everywhere all at once is like transportive, you know, hashtag cinema, right? It is, it blows your mind. It tugs at your heartstrings. It does everything to me that film is supposed to do. So I'm going to bet on this and I'm going to hammer it. (laughs) It's always so tough because I'm looking at the list of winners in the past and like, these are all good movies, but like how many of them were like 
movies that people really like championed that year you know like coda was last year which i think people really liked i've still uh, not even seen that movie <laughs> nomadland the year before Kojao. that Par- parasite was pretty good i think most people were very happy with that Bang. uh green book the year before that seen it uh shape of water moonlight spotlight birdman player slave argo this goes on and on um it's always hard. Like I never want to make a concrete prediction because it's like all these movies, like I said, are all pretty good. So I wouldn't be very upset, but like, is there one on here that you guys would be like, what the fuck? Is it one? <laughs> yeah. Realistically. I, I reserve the right to answer that until I've seen the, the remaining four nominees that I okay. have. Fair enough. Let's circle I mean, back. I don't think that all 10 have a chance to win. Yeah. Like, you know, but I would be pissed if Tar won because I okay. just don't give a fucking shit. I just, <laughs> that's just my analysis. I just don't I, give a I didn't I like don't Elvis. I don't really like Boz Lerman in general. So Elvis as well. Okay. I couldn't even get through that movie. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, The Last of Us, episode two. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, and we are back. The Last of Us Episode 2, Infected, directed by game creator, writer, Neil Druckmann, which I think is dope. Uh, two days before the outbreak. Now, that two days thing, I don't know if they mentioned on the show itself, but this mm-hmm. is the recap that I found online. Uh, two days before the outbreak in Jakarta, which was mentioned in the pilot. So yep. we're going to talk about this a bit. What, Just really quickly, let me interject. I was watching it with my girlfriend, and like it shows the streets, and I'm like, you know what? I don't know how I know this, but I think that's Jakarta. Like, I'm, I'm like really impressed with my geography skills and identification. She's like, because in the first episode they mention it. I'm like, oh, I'm an idiot. <laughs> uh, I, I just, you know, it was a nice moment where I went up and then I went right back down. Oh, shit. You need someone to humble you. Yes. Look for that uh, in a partner, folks. All right. So in Jakarta, a mycologist learns of the oncoming pandemic and advises the government to bomb the city to stop it from spreading. In the present day, Ellie explains to Joel and Tess that she is being transported west in hopes of being used to find a cure. Discovering the path to the state house is swarmed with infected. The three cut through a museum where they are attacked by clickers. Ellie is bitten. They arrive at the state house only to find the fireflies are dead. Tess reveals that she was bitten too, and while her bite begins to transition her into an infected, Ellie's begins to heal, proving that she is, in fact, immune. Joel shoots and starting to turn infected, which alerts the nearby swarm to their location. Tess convinces him to escape with Ellie while she stays behind, blowing up the building and killing herself along the horde. Big picture thoughts. Cade, you are our resident Last of Us expert. Yeah, this is, uh, again, very faithful episode to the game. The only big difference, I think, is there's the turned over skyscraper. You see that visual at the end of the first episode and it's in the second episode. They go through that in the game and it's a big section. That's where you're introduced to the clickers. Well, this is going to jump ahead a bit, but the biggest change that I've seen is that the ending in the game is Fedra and not a horde. Yes, and that's the other big change. Uh, The other big change is... Uh, Fedra is kind of tracking him down after they escape the QZ and stuff and they they come in and and the fireflies are already dead and Tess kind of makes like a 
not so significant standoff with them joel like gets up the stairs and she's already dead like <laughs> so they're just like all right go fucking find them i uh, forgot that she dies and and yeah yeah she Shout gets anna torv who a lot of people know from mind hunter she just very she's oh, good great. every time she's popped up on screen very and good i'm always like that's a good actress yeah <laughs> Um, and so I, I appreciate this because it makes her death feel a little more impactful as opposed to like, I'm right here, bang, just dead, you know, uh, now she gets to literally kill all these infected, the people that have turned her and also protect Ellie and Joel and send them on their way. And then that little kiss that happens is fucking vile. That is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. Yeah, we will get to that. B, what are your big picture thoughts? Uh, somebody said this on Twitter Sunday night and, you know, usually I like to come up with my own thoughts as an original thinker, but this person just said it so well. And they were like, across two episodes of the last of us, my butthole has not unpuckered yet. (laughs) And I'm like, wow, you just nailed it. This show is so good at tense action. And I think it's, it is very seamlessly combed into the character development and how we see this relationship dynamic slowly evolving. And as you and I talked about, man, these framing devices uh, at the beginning of each episode in the cold opens with the first one talking about the theory and, you know, what could be. And the second one jumping forward to the onset of the outbreak and that theory becoming a reality. I'm hoping that's something that they continue to use throughout the rest of the show. Yeah, so we'll touch on that next. My big picture thought is actually not so much negative, but not as sort of overwhelmingly praisingly positive as you guys is. And that, to me, this felt very video gamey. Where in the sense it was, you got to go from point A to point B to point C, and you can't go backward because Mm -hmm. X happened, and you've got to go forward because Y happened. And it is a cousin of the complaint that we have about Mando, which is largely a a show that we love, but we enjoy, or I don't want to speak for y'all, but what I always enjoyed about that show is the overarching narrative and the story of Mando and Grogu, not the weekly monster that he has to overcome or the weekly MacGuffin that he's got to track down and capture. So this, maybe it's because of my memories playing the game, specifically was the moment where they walk through a doorway and stuff falls behind them as if to force them to Mm -hmm. confront the clickers, which I understand that this is a nitpick, but you shouldn't be having to use video game devices in order to propel your show. Right. Like I have never seen something so aggressively like video game tactic Mm -hmm. as I did there. And I worry if that is going like, you know, next week is the famed famed. I mean, it's not even out yet, but I've only heard good things from those who have seen it. But B, based on the teasers, this is the one that is going to show uh, Nick Offerman and uh, Murray Bartlett. Are they only going to be in it for one? And then it's on to point D and then they're on and then they're at point D for a bit. And then they're on to point E and. I just, I want there to be moments where they catch their breath and settle in for a bit. Now, I understand that the timeline of the story may not allow for that, but that was my main feeling here. It's an interesting complaint and, uh, or criticism, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, with, with the characters, uh, because that is the game, right? Is like you meet a section of characters, but the game isn't limited to 60 minutes for an arc, right? Every episode has to have an arc and its own little complete story. Whereas the game can be like, we're going to spend three hours with these people and then you'll move along and you'll do whatever. And you get to, you know, have cutscenes, and then you get the interchanging dialogue while walking between points and stuff. 
the TV show doesn't have that luxury. So you like, only get going to be guest stars. You know what I mean? Like, I, you know, the, yeah. The guest star of the week, the Anna yeah. Torv and Nick <laughs> Offerman and Melanie Linsky, you know, like, yeah, sorry, no, guys, it, it is, it is a, it's, and it's harder to build emotional connection in a TV show with those characters. Like you do in the game, like I said, cause you have a longer time to spend with them and you get to find like notes and stuff that like, Oh wow. I didn't know this about this person. Whereas in the TV show, again, like 45 to 60 minutes with this person, who knows? Yeah. Again, still overall, I'm enjoying it. I just felt the video game mechanics too present. Yeah. Sure. Um, all right. Let's talk about the cold open, which everyone is loving after that fucking heater that they opened the series with, with that mm-hmm. 1968 talk show, they've somehow upped it, I think. I think that this one was even scarier because... Oh, yeah. Yeah, you agree? Oh, so, yeah. B, you touched on this as well, and I kind of had a similar note, just not as well put as yours. The first cold open was a warning from decades ago, right? This one is a cold open of a warning from days prior. I'm wondering if the next one will be like a warning day of. And then we'll get like, and I, and the reason I think that these cold opens can not only stick throughout the first season, but throughout the entirety of the show is it allows them to flesh out the world. But there are simply too many compelling scenes in the past for them to pass up, right? Will episode three show us an outbreak scene, which I'm sure would be fucking gnarly? Will episode four show us the bombings? Like, I feel like the visual of having the American military bombing Boston It's just too harrowing of a scene to pass up. So I can see them using this for like the way that Lost did in terms of character development, but also world building. They just said on their little recap podcast they do every week, uh, they had a like global infection montage that they cut which is really disappointing to hear. So it would have shown you here's what the outbreak was in this country, in this city, in this city, which would have been really cool to see, like you said, because like that first episode with the planes falling out of the sky was like, oh, that's like really a terrifying thought. Um, so I'm but I don't know if I need the montage. I like how they're putting us in the point of view of a sure. specific person, right? In the first one where three dudes talking. This one, it's the doctor and like the yeah. general type dude. So I wonder if like episode three will put us with a family when they get, you know, news that bombs are going off and we're going to have to watch a father, you know, (laughs) try to talk his kids, you know, through that or something. So yeah, I just think it's the way that they've been doing it is chilling and just a mood setter throughout the entire show to come. In the apocalyptic genre, the fall of society is typically the most fertile and thematically rich ground, the most interesting territory to explore especially compared with what is, of course, harrowing, but often very repetitive in the Mm -hmm. post-apocalypse setting where, you know, you have settled into this very dangerous routine, this very uh, monotonous, you know, kill, survive, you know, scurry away process. So Mm -hmm. I really hope they do continue to hit this. And to kind of both of your points, both the montage that they cut and Eric, what you're talking about, these different POVs, the original World War Z, the book, and the movie, they don't resemble each other at all. And the mm-hmm, one, right. one reason I love the book is there is no main characters. It just goes and provides a, a snippet, a snapshot, a pocket of society from culture to culture and how both they, the society fell, how they dealt with it in the aftermath, what were the attitudes that pervaded that culture and society that either led to it or helped them survive it. 
again, there, there's no kind of central through line. You just keep visiting different areas and different people's recollections. I thought that was an ingenious way into what is a very, you know, saturated genre overall and can be hybrid, uh, hybrid utilized here where the cold open gives us that. And then we return to, you know, Joel and Ellie. And I think that's, that's bridging two of the most interesting gaps that this show has. So I, I'm hoping this structure stays consistent. The, okay. The, the, well, I was just going to say the, uh, this whole sequence also, I think emphasizes the importance of Ellie, right. Of there is no vaccine. There is no medicine. So Ellie is the cure, right? And that means if something happens to her, there is no cure, there is no vaccine. And that is a very scary thought and definitely foreshadows some things to, uh, to come in the series. I just want to shout out the actress who plays the mycologist because that scene where she's like, you know, the way that she sells it on her face, like yes. the moment that she realizes the world is fucked is when the guy says, we can't find 14 of them. It's at mm -hmm. that moment that she's like, oh, we are fucking screwed. And yeah. knew exactly what was going to happen. I just want to quickly say too, the ability to make a small role memorable is so hard, so hard. And it combines good writing and good acting. And so far in both cold opens, just nailing it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So shout out to her because you could just see the panic just first slowly, but then rapidly just spread across her face. Not just the 14 people, but she mentioned it was at a factor 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 factory. <laughs> Flower factory, yeah. which is in the very first episode, this has been a fan theory that is now proven true of Joel and Sarah do not eat pancakes. They do, they turn down the biscuits from their neighbor right. and they reject all these flowery foods that all these other people around them are eating. And that's how it spreads. So she's like, oh my God. And Jakarta is home to the biggest flower factory in the world so any of this. it's it's fucking insane it's such a cool little detail that's like oh my god yeah in just a couple of days because all this flour is produced here and isn't so much food it just spread so quickly and there's nothing you could do about that it makes sense because my girlfriend and i were also talking the grandmother wasn't bitten at least that we saw so I, yeah. th I thought it was airborne but no that makes a lot more sense yeah. that's really cool it's crazy all right, so let's move on out of the cold open and back into the present day, where I think the best way to sort of describe this scene is where Ellie wakes up and tells them about that she's immune, which as far as I know, and as Kay just pointed out, this is the first that they've ever heard of such a thing. And obviously they're wary, but I think that this really highlights sort of the different ideologies of Tess and Joel. Whereas like Tess, you know, she, she needs some convincing a bit, but she's pretty much on board as soon as she sees her arm. Whereas Joel is like, well, you know, she's going to change sooner or later. And I think what makes that interesting is because not only does the like does Tess's hope cost her her life, but in a in a deeper emotional way, it's also going to cost Joel his right. Because the more that he believes in Ellie's potential mm -hmm. and her as a human being or as a cure, the harder it's going to be for her to give him give her up. And we're mm -hmm. already sort of seeing that in this show we're in you know he's talking about bringing her back to the qz and letting her get killed because i fuck it i'm done i've had enough mm -hmm. to when the clicker shows up he's in full like lights off dad mode you know what i mean he's mm -hmm. in he's in full instinctual protection mode so i love the way that they sort of right before shit comes to roost for tess they outline where tess is in terms of hope 
and how much that hope has been extinguished out of Joel. And Mm -hmm. while it may grow and and it is going to grow in the weeks to come, that hope costs Tess her life and it's going to cost Joel as well. Yeah. um, It's, the whole show is about love, right? And that's 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 everything about The Last of Us is it's about love, the effects that love has on you and the power of love, both positive and negative. And um, Tess is like, there's clearly something here between us. I've never asked you to like reciprocate it. We just have always left it alone. But the fact that there is that level of there, I need you to do this for me. Do this for me. And so Joel doesn't have a lot of feelings. He's always closed off. He's always made sure he can't hurt like he did at the start of the apocalypse. And Tess is almost like, do this for hope. And also maybe you'll find something here. And uh, that's that's both tragic and inspirational, I guess. It's such a double-edged sword for him. It's uh, He's such a, a tragic character that he doesn't want to feel, but he feels the most out of anyone if that makes any sense. Kate, I'm so glad you mentioned that and specifically the love because what I loved about the way they structure the character decisions is he doesn't do it for Ellie or the hope of a cure or for mankind whatsoever. He does it specifically because Tess asks him to, which makes his upcoming reluctant growth and acceptance and opening up of his heart all the more rewarding because he doesn't care about her. He's doing it out of his, his, his respect and feelings for his partner And yet that is the side door entry into a much larger emotional transformation for him. And I think watching that metamorphosis from those origins, it really empowers the entire thing as if more so than if it was a very straightforward, oh, this young girl needs protection and I'm the one to do it. Yeah, exactly. All right. Any more thoughts on sort of the scene where Joel and Tess find out about Ellie's truth? No? Okay. Bella right, Ramsey's next big scene. At, what big? Bella, Bella Ramsey's great. That's it. Yeah, I yeah, I think she's been great as well. I her, the discourse around her is sort of the Mason Dixon line between are you an over aggressive nerd or not, and <laughs> wherever you fall on that line probably speaks to who you are as a general fan. Like I, well said, I apologize if you feel this way, but like if you get bent out of shape because of how an actor looks in relation to a character. You misunderstand the point of art in and of itself, which yeah. is which is extremely, extremely troubling. So let's move on. <laughs> like when like that quick moment where um where they say no to giving her a gun, the way that she delivers the all right, I guess I'll just throw a fucking sandwich at him. <laughs> like just like to have that come off as feeling like genuine humor and not like, hey, here's a funny joke in our zombie show <laughs> takes a great actress. She mm-hmm. maintains a teenager attitude in the most absurd, heightened of circumstances. And I love mm-hmm. that. Well, that brings me to my next point. The scene where they cut through the hotel. I love this scene because, well, A, it further highlights sort of how quickly I would die in this world. Like, I couldn't, like, the fact that they just walk through knee-deep water, they're going to be wet for the rest of the day. That mm-hmm. would be backbreaking for me. The trench foot <laughs> would be rampant. And I, and, and I understand that this is like a very suspend your disbelief thing. As soon as they walk out of their, that hotel, their legs are dry. Whereas Lieutenant Dan spent a military career reminding people to keep their feet dry. And these people could just walk through like 20 year old zombie infested waters and not have to think twice. 
a Lieutenant Dan reference in a, the Last of Us conversation. That's got to be worth ten bonus points. Well, I just, I don't, you know, it is such a detail science oriented show. Like, how could Trenchfoot not be a bigger problem? I don't know. I just, they're just too you fast. Should, you should see it in the fucking game. They're swimming around in it all the fucking oh, time. I, I know. I know. <laughs> but, but I totally agree with you about this scene because you know she she does the make believe as the as the right. person behind the desk. And you see, not, uh, you know, Joel doesn't smile, but he watches her playing. He and says, then she, you know, he like yeah. says, you know, you're, you're a weird kid. Like he's not, he's being friendly. He's being friendly. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then she, she falls over uh, seconds later, he runs up, he helps her out and he briefly forgets about all of his hate. And then he quickly draws his hand away because he remembers the infection, the bite and everything. But you see in that moment, he watches her just be a kid. And he gets involved in the moment. He he becomes lost in it and sees her for what she really is and what she should be. And then reality comes rushing back in. And it's this very subtle one-two beat, but so effective at the at displaying the character dynamics and what's happening already. And then just, oh, Kate, go ahead. That, that's just a really difficult thing from the games to translate. Because that's one of those things that happens when the player is searching for things to like repair their, their guns and whatnot. And they're doing all this stuff. And, and Ellie is wandering around out of your view and she's saying things that's something that happens a lot in the games and that builds character and that relationship as the player and joel and ellie uh but it's something to translate that's difficult to translate in a tv show and they're doing it so flawlessly it just feels so effortless that they are able to interject those moments that are really important not necessarily to the story but the relationship which is the foundation of the story um and I really, I really appreciate it. those are the little things that are really difficult to do in an adaptation for a video game. And they are succeeding very strongly. Yeah, I have the same thoughts as you guys. One thing I will just tack on is, and they did this in Station 11, where they had one scene sort of having a character explain the premise of a cell phone, I think. <laughs> and so the idea that like a functioning hotel is mm-hmm. purely something that Ellie has had to create in her imagination Wild. is thrilling to me like mm-hmm. her like her the idea of her seeing a bellhop is like the idea of us seeing a dinosaur you know what i mean like it's yeah. not quite one-to-one but that is how not of her world it is so when she's in a hotel when she says like oh i've read about these i love the idea that there is a post-apocalyptic civilization enough in the sense that they have school and they're learning and they're teaching her things and then at one point they were like this was a hotel. I just, I love that detail. <laughs> Imagine explaining the internet to someone who's never had it and saying, we had access to all of human knowledge throughout the entirety of history. And we used it to steal music and watch people fornicate. Yeah. <laughs> like imagine they'd be like, wow, you guys wasted all of this unbelievable technology. You took everything for granted. But and that's yeah, how we so- wound up here. Exactly. But to your point, it is a really humanizing moment to see the world through their eyes. All right. So, and then just the one last thing I want to say about the hotel scene is, you know, this is, as B touched on, you really see the foundations of their growing relationship, not only in how sort of Joel reacts to her, like being a kid and then almost being in danger, but the moment the when Tess goes off to do her own thing and they like have a, le- not a legitimate conversation, but they at least try to, right? Uh, all right. And then the next big scene is the first encounter with the clicker. I already expressed my sort of discontent with the scene, with the way the scene was structured and in like they literally had to trap them inside in order for them to confront them. I don't think that you needed that. I think once you're being pursued by one, 
like you're fucked. You know what I mean? Like they mm-hmm. should have just had the being like, we have to keep going. We have no choice. We aren't going backwards. Other than that, I thought it was a completely thrilling scene. The same way it does in the game, their inability to see but incredible hearing is just such a perfect dramatic engine because when I'm watching scary films, I'll turn it on mute. Like that is what scares me. It's not what I'm seeing. It's the sound or the noise. So the fact that this show can utilize sound being the thing that literally invites terror you know and they just they look so fucking disgusting and i'm beginning to worry that this show is just gonna bludgeon us over the head with disgustingness every chance they get yeah one of my favorite things about this sequence one i love how accurate the clickers look like they look exactly like they do in the game and they're fucking disgusting and i hate it and uh they get right up to joel as he's doing this like silent reload like he's slowly reloading his revolver and there's nothing quite like that in the game whenever you reload it's like a regular reload uh but there are those moments in the game where you have to craft like a molotov or a bomb or health kit or whatever and you have to like sit down on the ground open your backpack and start doing stuff while there are enemies around you and this perfectly again just translates that little stuff that is so integral to the tension of the gameplay into the action of the Mm. show which i really really love um great point yeah, and then I like the part where he uh, he like throws a statue into a glass case to like dis- distract its hearing and mess with it. And uh, I also love how she gets bit, and even though she's already been bitten, and she's just like, "Oh man, not again!" Yeah. <laughs> uh, B, since you have never experienced a clicker before, thoughts? I mean, I had watched you know my friends play it in college, and while I drank beer on the couch, but I'm not intimately familiar. I understand what you mean by the video game mechanics. And I, I was going to say, when you said, it, I'm like, well, we can't criticize this for it and not criticize Mandalorian. And then you immediately read my mind and got to it, which I, I really re- appreciated. One reason why I'm completely okay with it and why that, why that thought didn't really enter my mind in this episode is, you know, this is the second episode. And this is our first real, actual, tangible introduction to the clickers. So putting them in a room where they are trapped when it is already part of a journey and the entire episode has done a good job of using exposition, both in the, uh, the cold open on on terms of the collapse of the world and in teaching Ellie, which is really teaching the audience and relaying information they need to know about how the clickers work, how there's a hive mind, how their roots, you know, cover, cover miles and miles. I think it was effective. Now, if every single dangerous scenario is manufactured to this degree throughout the rest of the show sure then i think we can maybe complain that it's it's slightly contrived but i really think thus far it's been pretty natural we saw the collapse in episode one and the the proto zombies and this was like a real deformed time affected clicker and i'm okay with introducing that in the very standard but effective trapped in a room horror aesthetic or, or horror uh you know mechanism whatever you want to call it all right, and then the final major part of this episode is the death of Tess. And and this actually relieved me. I usually don't like to forget things, but the fact that I had forgot that she dies makes me think that there's a lot more that I have forgotten, so I will be able to really experience this for the first time in some ways. So yeah, I had completely forgotten. The way that they did it was classic sort of zombie, save yourself, death. But I do think that the character through lines that it was layered with, as B touched on, whereas she uses those moments to tell Joel, please do this for me. Not like, do this for mankind, save the world. Like, she's like, I really need you to do this for me. 
I appreciate all of that. Of course, the struggle with the lighter is very cliched. I've seen that a thousand times in my life, but the way she doesn't get ripped apart by a horde of zombies, as you would normally see in those scenes, but instead gets a, you know, just a truly disgusting tentacle kiss, you know, just a, a perfect way to end the show to keep momentum moving forward in a thrilling way. Like just when you were starting to be like, oh, Tess is that bitch, huh? Dead. And like, you know, and you begin to see the foundations of Joel and Ellie and now they're truly on your own, which really is where the story truly begins. So, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny, too, because earlier in the episode, she's telling Ellie about the infected and she's like, you may be immune to the bite, but you're not immune to being ripped apart. And uh, then obviously Tess has been infected. So they don't really just like maul her to death. Like you said, they, they kind of just approach her to like speed up the process instead, but it's like, that's 10 times worse than just having my organs ripped out. Honestly, like you just, the way she's like, mm, like, I fucking hate this. It's yeah. it reminded me when I'm on, a, I hate roller coasters when I'm on a roller coaster and you're, you're at the steady, like approach up and then sit at the top. And I'm just like, give me the out of here that's yeah. what exactly reminded me of <laughs> you know there's so many articles and videos of like best kisses in pop culture history <laughs> we need to start a worst kisses ranking and figure out where this sits in the history of pop culture we need to contextualize this properly so i think that should be a post-cred pod side project I like that. Uh, I, mean, I think that that is the long-term winner i i i, I can't <laughs> think of anything that is just and my girlfriend is like, would you shut the fuck up, please? Because I'm sitting there like, Wah! I can't watch this because I'm squeamish as fuck, man. So like, I'm, I'm just so glad you say that because I'm always like, can't watch, can't watch, can't watch. And my girlfriend's always like, it's fake, you know, like get yeah. over it. <laughs> I know. I just it's so fucking nasty. All right. I think that's a good place to wrap up for the week. Make sure to check back next week when we are discussing episode three, which I have heard is fucking sick. I am trying my hardest not to watch the screeners i, I don't know how it. you haven't i like i have zero willpower when it comes to that i watched them all in a day <laughs> like i had to watch yeah, all Kate, respect <laughs> Kate, i like that Kate, you got all nine right i only got the first four so oh, okay. uh and then after two weeks from now i'll get them like the wednesday before they air i believe okay okay yeah i mean look i'm dying to and i might but and thank god my girlfriend does not check out the show she would fucking hang me by my thumbs in the town square if i went past her for watching so <laughs> so if i did i'd have to like pretend that i haven't seen it yet mm-hmm. on someday <laughs> <That's hilarious. laughs> all right y'all so make sure to follow brandon at great underscore catsby and all the work that he does at parrot analytics where he's still writing a bit um, make sure to follow Cade at Cade underscore Onder and all of his work at comicbook.com, including video game reviews and weekly recaps of The Last of Us. Follow me at Eric Italiano and at PostgredPod. Today I did something I never do. I planned ahead and I made a calendar of all the film releases of the year so I could get ahead of interview requests. I still got to add streaming films to it and TV shows to it, but I'm fucking, I'm thinking ahead. 2023 is your year, Eric. I'm turning 30. I'm going to try to think more than three days into the future. That's that's (laughs) my life goal for 30. All right, y'all, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't, and we will talk to you next week. Peace. 